Welcome to AZ TechCast, sponsored by the Arizona Technology Council, with your hosts, Steve Zylstra and Karen Nowitz. AZ TechCast is dedicated to covering innovation and technology in Arizona and beyond. Broadcasted monthly, AZ TechCast invites leading experts to have real conversations about what is happening in the tech sector across the state of Arizona. From regional news to innovative startups, companies, and emerging technologies, AZ TechCast covers the critical issues and economic trends propelling the state's growing tech ecosystem. Should we build out our internal ID department or work with a managed service provider? Should we onshore or offshore IT support? And how can we attract qualified IT talent? We're going to get those answers to those questions and many others in just a few minutes. I'm Karen Nowicki, president and owner of Phoenix Business Radio X, and I'd like to welcome you to AZ TechCast, sponsored by the Arizona Technology Council. AZ TechCast is dedicated to covering innovation and technology in Arizona and beyond. Broadcasted monthly, AZ TechCast invites tech and business experts to have real conversations about what's happening across the state of Arizona. AZ TechCast discusses the critical issues, the topics, and trends propelling the state's growing tech ecosystem. So please join me in giving a warm welcome to today's featured guest. We have Alex Cole, CEO of Cold Technologies. Welcome, Alex. Thanks for having me. We're thrilled to have you. And Will Davis sitting next to me, Director of Data and Analytics at Slalom. Welcome, sir. Happy to be here. And Jackie Shipley, Chief People Officer at Accountabil IT. Am, am I saying that correctly? It's actually accountability. It is accountability. I kind of played yeah. with that. I should have asked you behind <laughs> behind the scenes. So welcome, Jackie. We're thrilled to have you. Thank you very much. And we have Alex. I believe you're in Tucson and Jackie's in Scottsdale. Am I right? That's correct. Yeah, absolutely. It. Well, we're looking forward to having introductions from each of you, including Steve Zalstra. He's the council president and CEO. And we're going to launch into a discussion to enhance how your IT strategy and can better prepare your shifting trends in technology. Before we do that, we want to dive in and have each of you introduce yourselves so our listeners and viewers know a little bit about you. And Will, if you don't mind starting first, you're, you've got the hot seat sitting next to me. Sure. I'll kick us off. So yeah, Will Davis, I work for Slalom Consulting, which is a, a full-service technology consulting firm. We have about 13,000 people globally. Here in Phoenix, we have about 150 consultants that span all of our services. And I lead our data and analytics practice, which is really focused on help us, helping our customers, our clients, unlock the value of their data, which is definitely an exciting place to be right now with all the focus on AI. Very good. Alex, how about you? Yeah, so Alex Cole, CEO and founder of Cole Technologies. Uh, we are a managed services provider. So we help other businesses with their IT, security, and most recently their compliance. Very good. And Jackie, welcome. Thank you. Um, Jackie Shipley from Accountability. We're a managed services and security services provider uh, specializing in tailored solutions for our customers, both in technology and their business needs. Uh, we have locations in US and in India. I'm the chief people officer, and I handle all the recruitment, employee engagements, as well as taking care of the HR functions, benefits, and payroll. Fantastic. Steve, I know our listeners and viewers are familiar with you, but some may be new to this conversation, given who we've invited on today. Let's have an opportunity for you to introduce yourself and AZ Tech Council. Sure. Thank you. And uh, by the way, accountability provides the Arizona Technology Council's, Council's IT services. So thank you, Jackie, for that. 
I'm Steve Zylstra, President and CEO of the Arizona Technology Council and our foundation, which is called the SciTech Institute. The council is a statewide organization, offices in Phoenix and Tucson. We have about 750 member companies across all of the state, including Prescott, Flagstaff, and Yuma, and Sierra Vista, and other places. Uh, we do four basic things. We do public policy advocacy on behalf of the tech industry at the state and federal level. The interface really with our congressional delegation, the legislature, and the governor. We do somewhere between 100 and 150 events a year. So we're very much focused, an event-focused uh, organization. We have many publications. We do two podcasts, including this one. And we provide uh, services to our members uh, at discounted prices. We run an association health plan. So we provide medical, dental, vision, life, disability. We run a 401k program. Even if you had four or eight or 12 employees, you could have a 401k through our multiple employer plan. So really a full service trade association working on behalf of science and technology-based enterprises. Fantastic. Thank you for the great introductions from all of you. So let's start from the very beginning, kind of a, a basic place to start. Can you help us define information technology, IT? What are some of the spe specializations that fall under IT? And we'll really let each of you just kind of round robin. And if you have something to offer, please do. And if not, we'll make sure we slide over to the next question. All right, I'll, I'll jump in here do first. Um, yeah, you know, IT is, is obviously really, really broad. And, um, you know, each one of us probably has a little bit of our own focus within that domain. But, you know, at a fundamental level, it, it's kind of moving ones and zeros around. And anything that's involving that, IT is going to be touching it, which I think for every company, they're, they're going to have an IT component to it. Really, anymore, don't they say any company is a technology company? That's true. Yeah. Or a product company, one or the other. <laughs> You said it kind of the best there. I mean, uh, anything that, that a business uses to conduct their operations is probably in some way touching IT. So, I mean, in a medical setting, think about EHR systems, um, not even CRMs, databases. Uh, in manufacturing, the robots that are on the production line have software and systems connected to them and networks required to make them all talk. Um, you have engineering firms that have CAD design software and um, you know, large storage and compute requirements to run those things. So um, it's, it's really, you know, the, there's the user facing side and then there's the, the back end that's required to run that. And, um, you know, the, the back end side is, I think, the portion that is oftentimes kind of forgotten about. But that's really one of our focuses here at, at my organization. And that's kind of where we uh, take care of that as much as we can for our clients, because that's stuff that they'd probably rather not deal with. Yeah, it really boils down to the the development, maintenance, and the use of just about everything, computer network, software, yeah. hardware, to develop and process data. Exactly. So in, in follow-up to that, by the way, you know, we're the Arizona Technology Council, and it's, it's very interesting when you say that to people, a lot of people think we're focused on IT, because when people think of technology, they think of IT. And of course, we're focused on probably 15 to 20 other other sectors, but a lot of people find the word technology synonymous with IT. Why is it important, particularly for technology companies that we serve, to have either an IT department, a team, 
other resources available to them to support their business efforts? I think I know a lot of the answers to that, but I want to hear from the experts. You know, I, I think they've gotten much more tightly coupled. Uh, it's almost impossible to be a technology company without having a, a significant IT capability. The recent talk from from Jetson Wong, the CEO of NVIDIA, and he was saying that they are incapable of designing new versions of their chips without AI. So you can't have people do it. Just the, the number of permutations that you have to go through to, to stay on the cutting edge of that requires IT. And that, that's a very advanced IT capability. Uh, but even if you look at you know a, a small mom and pop shop, like my dad uh, has a law firm, they have IT needs as well. They have to manage, store securely all the documents that they have. And so, um, you know, I think decoupling those has become impossible at this point. By the way, I didn't meet him, but I sat next to him when the big TSMC event was here. The CEO of virtually every technology company in the world was here for that, including Tim Cook and, and everybody else you could possibly imagine. That was pretty cool. He's, he's a really, really good speaker. Really fun to watch. Yeah. I think a lot of it is about risk, reducing risk as well. I mean, a lot of organizations are getting, you know, inundated with with ransomware and malware attacks. And you hear it in the news, you know, every year they say it's a record year. And I think this year probably should be no different. And so a lot of our smaller, medium-sized businesses um, in Arizona are pursuing cyber insurance. And one of those prerequisites to obtaining cyber insurance is that you have to have um, an added services type arrangement with either your internal or IT resource. So you know, managing vulnerabilities and, and patching up systems and, you know, having a formal documentation of how you're going to respond in case something happens is a requirement. So a lot of these small businesses are outsourcing their IT needs to manage services providers or um, leading heavily on their internal IT resource to make sure they can be covered. Right. So, um, a priority to keep technology working for the employees, the network, and the systems up. And what you said, Alex, it's, it's pretty much key with uh, security and governance and compliance these days. We have accountability that provides our services, but we also have cyber insurance, as you mentioned, Alex, because these things can be disastrous, um, you know, if you're not if you're not careful and have the right capabilities. Tell us about the people within uh, IT. Do they tend to work in silos? Do they tend to work in, in teams? Are they cross-functional? Are they company-wide? Uh, give us a little flavor for what that all looks like. I'm going to um, say yes to that question. Um, I think when it comes to just the day-to-day, -day, daily repeatable tasks, one, only one group needs to be touching it. There doesn't need to be any communication across uh, different groups. I think it's, you know, silo is probably the way to go. But when you have some sort of critical issue and it comes in and you can't triage it, and you're not sure if it's a cyber attack or a system or application or network, I think it's very important that you get cross-functional teams together, sort of in the quote-unquote same room, looking at it at the same time. Uh, it just promotes faster resolution. Yeah, I think along those lines, one of the things that you want to be you, you want to have, I guess, silos by design in the sense that you're intentional about where your silos exist. You, you can't avoid them entirely. People can't be spread so thin that they can't do anything effectively, but you don't want your silos to be visible to your customers. So if I'm interacting with you via one channel, I expect to have a similar experience via another channel. 
And so I, I think it's okay to have silos so long as those silos are by design and they're not accidentally created through your boxes and, and lines that you've drawn from an organizational perspective. Or more often than not, people will draw those lines along architectural boundaries in, in your tech stack. And I, as a customer, I don't care what your tech stack is. I shouldn't have to care, but I don't want to be facing friction in my experiences because of the silos that you've created. Yeah, 100%. I mean, and so silos exist functionally for a lot of reasons. And I think one of those reasons in my mind of why they're good sometimes is separation of duties. So, you know, for instance, in cybersecurity, you don't want to have the person with all the keys to the kingdom, like a sysadmin or somebody with a lot of privileged access also be responsible for the security auditing because the opportunity for something malicious happening there is is, is stronger. But I think it's more important than ever to work cross-functionally across organizations, departments, because the value that IT provides is it, it far exceeds, you know, the, the old adage of uh, having a computer guy, right? It, it's it's business systems. It's millions and millions of hours of data. It's so much more than just what you're seeing on the computer. Sounds like how Jackie started us off is sort of all of the above. <laughs> yes, there was the answer was yes, right? Yeah. It's a great segue to another question around internal IT departments versus MSPs, the managed service providers. Can you each speak to the pros and cons and does it make sense or is it worthwhile to have both? Is the answer yes can again, add, Jackie? <laughs> can I add another sub question to that? Of course. When is it necessary or important? Uh, what size do you need to be? before you have to have some on-premise capability? I think no organization is too small to have some sort of support, whether it's internally or externally. I've helped organizations who are very small, who, you know, for example, maybe they're looking at government contracts, so they have some really complex cybersecurity and IT needs that they should engage with an MSP kind of earlier on to help them with the design because down the road, it's going to be a lot harder, more expensive and more disruptive to make changes. So um, I, I think everybody can benefit. It's whether or not you're ready to spend the time and resources needed to get that going. But it, there's always a benefit, always a benefit. Yeah, a good rule of thumb that we use is is whatever IT capability that or, or application or experience that you're, you're trying to manage, is it a core capability for you? Does it provide you a competitive advantage? And if so, then that's something that you should look at taking in-house. You want to have that, that continuity of knowledge. Um, you want to be able to spin that up, spin that down. And you can do that sometimes with outsourcing, but you always want to have the continuity of your internal people who know your customers and they know your ecosystem and they can move quickly with it. And then for some of the things on the periphery that aren't core to you, um, then that's where you're using those SaaS solutions. That's where you're using an MSP to manage those things um, so that you're not focusing a lot of your your brain power on those non-core activities. And I think it's kind of a misnomer that I think a lot of IT pros are kind of fearful of an MSP coming in because they I think their perception sometimes is that an MSP could take their job. But in reality, I think it couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, we can work alongside IT departments and, and those IT experts to further their operations and make things off, you know, take things off of their plate and make their lives easier too. So definitely worthwhile. When you have a smaller business, sometimes you just can't afford to have a database administrator, somebody in security, somebody that's watching networks, someone that's doing, you know, the system. So that's the pro of MSP is you're paying by the SIP. You're, you're not paying, laying all the capital out for an infrastructure. You're just, you're just paying for what you need. And that lends to a lot of expertise that you can tap into. 
little uh, side question again. Um, does the massive amount of people that are now working from home change any of that? Or are the, or would your responses still be the same? I think they're the same. Execution looks different, but I mean, it's still just as important. I think maybe along the lines okay. of what Jackie was sharing around the, the ability to tap into additional expertise because everybody is remote. Well, not everybody, but so many people are remote now. Uh, you can get that expertise from anywhere. And the benefit of, a, of an MSP or a large consulting firm is they have those global resources that can be brought to bear quickly for some of the more niche requirements that you may have. By the way, some of us are 100% remote. The Tech Council has a beautiful office at uh, Thomas and Central, but we all work from home most of the time. So, you know, we hear a lot. Well, over the years, we've heard a lot about outsourcing. I'm wondering whether or not, um, you know, what do you have to keep in mind, whether you're offshoring, outsourcing, or even what really has become popular, because I get this question all the time, nearshoring, right? Some some people are requiring, because of all the supply chain issues, that their resource be at least close by, right? In our case, that'd be Mexico. Can you give us some thoughts about that? From my perspective, I think it comes down to cost and the sensibility of the function of it and, and compliance. If you have a bunch of repeatable tasks and you're batching and you're patching and it can be done overnight, and, you know, it's just you don't need intervention with any customers or any other departments. I, that's a super cost effective way is to manage that type of work offshore. But when you get into complex problems and projects and you need to have customer facing and you need to be on site or from a compliance perspective, some U.S. companies, they don't allow anybody to touch their systems except U.S. citizens. That's where it lends to having resources onshore. Yeah, I totally agree with that, Jackie. A lot of the times I see, well, why don't we just outsource this? Or why don't we just, why would you go with a local MSP instead of uh, outsourcing this task with somebody who might be able to do this work at night when no one's here? And then that's cheaper for us too. And it's, um, it, 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 does, it comes down to security at the end of the day and, and, and trust. Of, you know, you're giving somebody access to your system and um, anytime you, it leaves the country, I mean, you might actually be creating an export issue um, depending on your customer. But I, I think that it, it comes in down to specific use case. You would give that offshoring a specific kind of, you know, sub task or a sub, not a subcontract, but just a smaller portion of it. And, um, you know, you would still want to maintain that, that uh, relationship and that overall project. But, um, you know, there's a time and a place for both, I think. I think Jackie nailed on the head in terms of making sure it's it's the right task and the right use case yeah. that you're you're offshoring for. We had a, a client at one point that they started with some of the, I guess, the, the lower complexity work, and then they started moving upstream further and further into the more complex work, kept offshoring, kept offshoring, and eventually got all the way to their, their business analyst function was offshored. And what you had is you had this tremendous drop-off in terms of the, the quality of the work that was occurring. And then you're also placing a huge burden on the internal resources that stuck around. And so you started to have morale issues there. And so to Jackie's point, you're, you, the answer is it depends. And you have to be thoughtful in your approach of what are the right tasks? Because there are significant cost savings with, with going offshore and there are absolutely perfect use cases for it. Um, so having that approach and having somebody help you kind of walk through how you're thinking through that is, is the right way to go. And then yeah, you, said, and you also exactly. asked about uh, nearshore really quickly. And uh, one of the huge benefits of that is time zones, um, you know, with, especially we've seen with like Mexico and Costa Rica, 
they're basically in the same time zone. And so you're, you're working, you know, at the same time, it doesn't put that huge burden again on your people to work some of the offshore hours with the, the handoffs that happen there with say like an Indian offshore. Just an anecdote I wanted to, to share, which is kind of interesting. So uh, I won't, re- I won't mention the company, but we have a member company that is in the IT consulting business. They've been around for 55 years, something like that. They had clients around the world. Some of their client, U.S. clients um, started to dictate that they must have nearshore resources, not offshore resources. So they actually came to us, the CEO did, to find out what those resources were in Mexico. It turns out we have about six organizations that are members of the Tech Council that do nearshoring in Mexico. And... Um, we were able to give them that list and they were able to interview those companies and ultimately hired one of them. But uh, it's like I said, that sort of the results of COVID have pushed not just manufacturing back here, but also some IT services. And in this particular case, it was primarily on software development. I would love to segue a little bit in this conversation, talk about more effectively creating and retaining people in IT positions in Arizona and or the U.S. And when we were at the CEO leadership retreat just a couple of days ago, Steve, I can't remember if it was you or one of our speakers mentioned just cybersecurity positions open alone. Do you remember the statistic around how many vacancies there are? You know, I've heard various different numbers. Nationwide, his data was 4.5 million, something like that. You know, some crazy number. I know we have somewhere between 10 and 20,000 openings in cybersecurity in Arizona based on some data from the Arizona Commerce Authority. So there are vacancies in almost every industry and every occupation these days. But IT has had a deficit as long as I can remember. Yeah. That's a long time. Yeah. So what, yeah, right. You've been around a long time in the industry. Cough, cough. <laughs> so I'd love, I'd love, to, I'd love to just ask why, why is there that deficit? And, and all four of you can jump in on that. And then also, let's talk about how can we more effectively create and retain these professionals in IT. There's certainly things that, you know, from a a slalom perspective that we do to retain people from a a cultural perspective. Uh, When we talk about Phoenix or Arizona at large, we aren't as competitive from a compensation perspective as a lot of other locations. And, And when you have the ability to work remotely, especially in IT, one of the challenges that we faced when we were hiring really, really aggressively during COVID is people would be comparing us against, say, a San Francisco-based startup. And compensation-wise, that, that was a really challenging place for us mm-hmm. to compete with. And that certainly put pressure, again, on our, our salaries for our existing folks pre-COVID. That dynamic, I think, has shifted the market a little bit. Uh, there's definitely been a cooling of that as well over the course of the last six to eight months as you had layoffs with some of the, the larger technology companies that are they're outside of Phoenix. That has probably depressed that compensation fever a little bit, but the the pressure is still there as Phoenix and Arizona tries to compete with some of those other locations for mostly remote workers. I think there's benefits outside of compensation that we can focus on, but that's still a critical element in terms of, you know, taking care of your family and those kind of things. And one of the things that we do is we, um, we provide career growth opportunities. So our goal is always to try to look within when we promote 
for example, our service desk, we call AIT University. You know, it's, it's entry level. They're generalists. They don't have much experience. Uh, they get to, they're exposed to our customers, our technology, our services. Uh, you know, they might be like, wow, this cybersecurity stuff's cool. How do I get into that? So it's our culture and we, we, our managers are designed to sit down with them and give them a path because we have access to certifications, online training, because nobody wants to be pigeonholed into something. So you got to give them something, a sort of a growth plan. So what do you want to be in, you know, in two years? What do you want to be when you grow up? So we try to focus on that. So it's just important for our managers to just provide that plan for them. I totally agree. I mean, we just hired a new tier one support person and she doesn't particularly have a lot of experience in the IT field, but, you know, we were able to recognize in, in onboarding her that, and even pre-onboarding with the um, interview process, that she had the, I mean, we just felt that she had an extraordinary potential to really thrive with the pace that she both learned new things and then her just kind of natural demeanor with, with customers. And so it really, the responsibility kind of falls upon, you know, the businesses here locally in Arizona to recognize that talent and and be willing to kind of invest in that in, in learning. And um, like you said, Jackie, having company-sponsored programs, if you want to call it that, to educate and, and train them maybe informally even um, is huge. Right. And on the back end, if you're honing the skills and develop, developing them and promoting them, it's a lot easier to recruit entry-level generalists than it is for somebody who has that type exactly. of So, um, by the way, I, I was thinking back, Karen, on uh, the CEO retreat, I think that that data we heard was about the total number of IT jobs open, not just including, cybersecurity, uh, including cybersecurity, but, you know, a very significant percent of that is cybersecurity. And that's, uh, of course, a, a national number. What, what I was interested in the uh, discussion among the CEOs was that some of them were suggesting that every education should include an education about cybersecurity, right? Because it's so important in, in today's world and that everyone needs to be alert to the issues and, and problems that can occur uh, around cybersecurity. And it's not going to get any better. It's only going to get worse, particularly with AI, which we'll talk about later. I was going to chime in really quickly. So with 10 years ago, DevOps, huge thing. And uh, maybe three to four years ago, DevSecOps became you know, much more in vogue of everybody focusing on security by design and embedding that into the app dev process. So security went from something that I would say earlier in my career, you had to go through the security architecture process and it was a pain and you thought, oh, this is going to be a hurdle to my go live. And now they're involved upfront throughout the entire design process and they're truly a value add and a critical component to it. So it's, it's been good to see that maturation of the market over the last 10 years to focus on security as an important concept. What are some of the um, most in-demand skills in IT that folks are recruiting for these days? And who's the hardest to find? Jackie, you want to go first? Well, shocker, security. <laughs> <laughs> security is the, the big one these days. Um, and then when you focus in on the cloud, AWS, Azure. Sentinel, O365, Active Directory, all those things are intertwined. So those are really the skills that kind of wrap around that, that we're, you know, really focusing on. Yeah, vulnerability research is, is a big area right now. And it, it kind of dovetails into cybersecurity, but that's, I mean, you hear about all the CVEs out there and those are only the ones that we know about. So the more folks that fill those vacant positions, um, you know, the, the safer that 
everybody's solution becomes. You know, I guess in terms of scarcity of supply, maybe it's COBOL developers. Seems, <laughs> seems like everybody needs those and they're hard to find. But uh, in terms of what we focus on, it's definitely the, the cloud, as Jackie mentioned. If there's a cloud component, whether it's on the data engineering side or the, the app dev side, cloud, everything. By the way, I learned COBOL when I was in uh, college. <laughs> the shocking thing to me is that the banking industry still relies on it, right? And the people that knew how to code in COBOL are, you know, retired. Let me say that. So the demand is um, significant. But um, I'll tell you what I hear most, because we do a lot of work in uh, workforce development and education, is that people say that the hardest people to find are software developers. That's what I hear all the time whatever type of code you're talking about. So, but again, some of that may change with AI as well. And we'll talk about that later. I think Karen's probably going to want to go to a commercial. I am, but not before I share that I was thinking about Snapchat and TikTok and my, you know, my 16 year old and these kids who spend so much time on their games and their devices and in their social media conversations. If we could harness the power and start gearing them towards those kinds of careers, we'd, we'd be doing good, right? Not, not just leave it to SciTech Institute and their CSO program, but if we could just find a way to make that happen and start subliminally telling them what they should be focusing on career eyes, holy cow instead of what's really happening in some of those environments. Anyway, on that note, I'm enjoying the conversation and we're greatly appreciative of each of your contributions to today's conversation around uh, IT. And we're going to take a moment to thank Arizona Commerce Authority, AZ TechCast 2023 Innovation Sponsor, and we'll hear from them right now. Our streamlined pro-business approach helps you achieve more by putting less between you and future success. Less red tape lower taxes, less distance separating you from the tech leaders of tomorrow. This innovative ecosystem will supply your business with tools and resources to compete in the 21st century and beyond. But your future is more than just business success. In Arizona, the lifestyle you want is at your fingertips. Explore cities known for their Southwest heritage and modern vision. Enjoy beautiful scenery and endless outdoor activities on land, water, or snow. And if you're looking for a little friendly competition, we've got plenty of teams to choose from. With constant sunshine, vibrant culture, and natural wonder, Arizona provides a style of living that's entirely unique. People from all over the world call our state home. From student leaders who fill the classrooms of our top-ranked universities to a skilled and abundant workforce that's ready for what's next. To the neighbors, friends, and peers we interact with daily, Arizonans are united by a pioneering spirit that moves us forward. So as you look to the future, know that it's filled with the perfect balance of innovation and high-quality living that makes life better here. say this every episode and I mean it every single time. It gets me excited about living in Arizona every time I hear that commercial from ACA. So we're grateful to have them as a sponsor. So I'd like to follow up with what we were talking about just before the break and that's, you know, around talent. The Tech Council does a lot of work in education and workforce development. Uh, we're subrecipients on uh, uh, grants that ASU has 
for both the NSF and the Department of Labor. You know, and some of that's focused either on cyber and IT or at least STEM. We've had a, a long collaboration with uh, an organization called Pipeline AZ, which is a significant platform for connecting talent with opportunity. I think they have 125,000 users on the platform and 6,000 companies, and it's Arizona-focused. But we'd like to ask all of you where you're finding your IT talent in Arizona and uh, you know what organizations, what processes are you using, anything you can do to enlighten us about the best place to find IT talent. I wish there was one single source at all of them. But uh, again, the answer is uh, depends. Yes, all of them, a little bit of everything. You know, we, we've got some small partnerships with like GCU and ASU to connect with some of their graduate programs, uh, especially like the, the Barrett College of Honors. And then outside of that, we definitely look for people who have left the state and then come back. Part of our recruiting model is to hire consultants, you know, especially from big four or that already have consulting experience because we don't have a ton of junior talent um, just as part of our makeup within the Phoenix market. Most of our people have 10 to 15 years of experience. And so a lot of times we're looking for people who have left the state and want to come back to their families. Um, We'd certainly prefer to to intervene sooner and not have them leave the state. That's a lot of what we've done up to this point. And then we also will, will pull people from industry from time to time. And we do have a program, an industry to consulting coaching program to help people develop some of those consulting skill set that are are critical for what we do. So about 10 years ago, the Arizona Tech Council hired the Seidman Research Institute at ASU to do a highly comprehensive study on the technology workforce. So it included uh, IT professionals, scientists, and engineers. And... um, one of the interesting and, and we were um, they were surveying companies, right? One of the findings was that everybody wanted some existing qualifications. The the study seems to say that no one was hiring fresh outs, right? Like right out of ASU or GCU. That may have changed over 10 years because there's no choice. But it's one of the things I hear that you know that people want someone who has some experience uh, when they hire them. And now we have the largest engineering school in the United States, right? Um, ASU is producing 25,000 engineers. Uh, You know, a lot of them are in computer science and uh, software engineering and so on and so forth. So anything you want to say about that issue of uh, hiring fresh outs, you know, people that have an education, but have no experience. Yeah. So for some of our more mature markets, um, like a Denver or a Seattle, they have associate programs that are geared entirely around taking people fresh out of college and, and developing them and investing in them. You have to have a certain scale to be able to do that. That's one of the things that we as a Phoenix market have started to do as a, a proof of concept to make sure that we can do it the right way. So if we're going to bring people in fresh out of college, we want to make sure that we can support them and grow them so that they will be successful uh, at Psalm and successful for our clients. Um, So there's a lot of work that goes into that, but I do think it's really valuable. One of the feedback that we've gotten from the other markets is you just have this tremendous hockey stick of performance from those folks that um, you may not get from somebody who's who's transitioning mid-career. The college students, if you can tap into that, 
you know, that potential and the power that they bring and the excitement, it can be really, really meaningful for your organization. Alex, where are you finding your talent and uh, what do you recommend? Are you allowed to tell us? Well, I, of course I am, you know, and, and Will, I think you really kind of struck home with me there. I wish there was one place you could just go where you had this bank of awesome people, but really it's it's about, I think, um, especially since we're a small business, it's about being open-minded. So really being willing and able to um, train and kind of nurture that right individual into the position you want, because um, I mean, the the number of graduates that come out with STEM degrees is, is um, not meeting the demand. So you know, we have to fill that gap somewhere. So being able as, a, as an employer, as a business to spend the time and train them um, is going to be what we have to do to make up for that. Jackie, this is your job every day of the week. Um, <laughs> give us some insight. Yeah, mine's, it's going to sound so boring, but I have been super successful with recruiting websites, not just posting a, a, a job. I actually go out and actively look. We're a small company. We try to keep our uh, costs down. You know, agency, recruiting agency costs are so high. So it's always my goal is to try to farm it myself first. So that's been successful. Uh, social media, our, our employees will post. We're hiring and it goes out to the network. Another really good one is, which is a testament that this might be a good company to work for, is employee referrals. We've had a, a number of employee referrals because we have a good program. Um, so if somebody is willing to bring in a friend or an ex-co-worker, uh, that's a good litmus test that we, we might be doing something right. So, uh, and then of course, you know, councils like yourself and Easy Pipeline, like you said, government agencies, yeah. DES. So just, you know, like Will Alex said, I wish there was this one thing, but you got to be creative. Yeah. Oh, so that something about the tech council uh, and pipeline uh, the good news is when you're a member of the Tech Council, you can post all your jobs for free. And PipelineAZ.com is, is totally funded, so it, it doesn't cost you to post any of your positions there either. And it, and it has some AI in it, so it does matching, too, uh, you know, with the 125,000 people who are on it. I learned something today. <laughs> Jackie, you, you hit it on the head with the referrals that I, I don't know if it's our, our dominant form of, of recruiting, but there's a lot more confidence whenever you're, you're getting yes. a referral. And to your point, if people are going to refer people in, that means that they do like working for the company. So all around, it's a good sign and, and probably the best way to do it. Do either of you or any of you incent your employees to refer people? Like, uh, is there a monetary incentive? Yep. It's not enough that, you know, they're going to bring in Joe Schmo off the street, but it's enough that it, it's worthwhile to, to, you know, to put the effort in to find somebody good. And each of you have <laughs> highlighted how you're helping to assist and educate throughout their, their tenure with you. That's got to speak volumes, too, about the longevity of your team and employees and their desire to want to bring in people that they, you know, they care about and they want to work alongside. So kudos to all of you. It, it got me thinking about, and we've talked about it on several other episodes of AZ TechCast, the apprenticeship model, would that be something that, that makes sense? And is that kind of, Jackie, what you're speaking to? Well, because we're so small, we're, we're about 200 employees globally. We haven't really needed to go that route. But if we continue to grow, we continue to get the partnerships like we have with Microsoft, it's not going to be sustainable for me to do what I've been doing. I'm going to have to go out, make partnerships with colleges, develop internship programs. So that is something definitely on the horizon. It just, I haven't had the, the necessity at this point to really pursue that. And Will, you spoke a little bit about working with GCU and ASU 
how do those relationships, and all three of you can speak to that, Alex, as well, how do you tap into the state's educational institutes for candidates? I know in like financial advisors we've had on shows before, they are going and, you know, finding opportunities to speak to those candidates and that sort of thing and help educate around career placement. What are some of the strategies that you guys have utilized or that you've seen in the industry for IT candidates specifically? Noticing there's a theme that's all those things. Okay. Um, so it, it could be going and speaking to the students to raise awareness around the, the brand, get them interested in slalom, get them interested in consulting. Say for the most part, if you're going to a business school, they all know about consulting at this point. And then getting to know the folks in career fairs so that they can help out and, and direct people. And then you can post within their, their posting systems as well. And then the last piece is referrals again. So through the relationships that are developed with the, the professors, they may have a really strong student and, and they'll recommend them to, to Slalom. And so that's, that's a really, really meaningful way to get people. So um, just a little anecdote again. So there's a program called Apprenti that is apprenticeship in technology, particularly in, in IT. Uh, it was actually developed by the Washington Technology Industry Association, our peer in Washington State, and is the most prolific apprenticeship program in the United States now focused on IT. Uh, we brought it here when SRP, we worked with the Phoenix Chamber, when SRP was trying to reskill the people, the Navajo power generating station was shut down. SRP guaranteed them all jobs. So Apprenti came in and trained a cohort of individuals that had either worked in the coal plant or worked in the power plant in IT. And uh, interesting statistic, I think they had nine apprentices. And this is like two or three years later now, they all still work there. And now they have uh, IT careers. And I, I mentioned that we are subrecipients on a few um, workforce programs. One is called AZ Next. And again, it focuses on I, I, IT and cyber. And there's an apprenticeship that's part of that $10 million grant. And um, they've actually had, it's more than 100, maybe as many as 200 now go through that apprenticeship program. So it is something that, you know, was really traditional in the skilled trades, but is becoming more important in the technology industry. Well, I think that just highlights how successful those programs are, you know, for the businesses right. as well. I mean, if they're still around nine years or um, I'm sorry, years later, all nine of them, that's, that speaks yeah. volumes. Pretty impressive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Another program I'll give a plug for, they're not paying me for this, is the, the Hiring Our Heroes program. So folks that are exiting the military have an opportunity to do an apprenticeship or internship with a, a company, and it's, it's totally funded by the military. So for the last, I think it's like two to three months that they're on active duty, they can come in and work for your company and kind of get a lay of the land, understand it. And then ideally at the end of it, there there's an offer, but that's not always the case. I think General Dynamics is, is doing that here in Phoenix, and it's a great way to get fairly technical talent um, that's exiting the military, and the, you know those are really, really strong employees. Yeah, that's another great example, which I think is a great segue to another question that we have for you guys. When we're looking at mid-career professionals, right, we're talking about military making the transition into the public sector, mid-career professionals, are you finding that a lot of people are looking to add IT 
specialties and, and IT skill sets to make a transition into some of these positions? And if so, are they standing out in front of other candidates? And how can we uh, encourage more of that? Lots, a loaded, several questions in there. So I, I have a person on my team who did a, a mid-career transition. He was a, a teacher and then moved into the data and analytics world. And he's someone who is just a, a lifelong learner. He always wants to learn new things and he's just amazing to work with. And the experience that he brings from being a teacher, I think is makes him unique and kind of gives him his own superpowers in terms of being able to educate others, his interpersonal skills or, or things that you may not typically find in, in the engineering world. And so I, I love it when people make that transition mid-career. I certainly made that whenever I exited the military. So it definitely requires some investment. And then ideally, those people are investing in themselves up front to prepare for it and show that commitment because it does take a lot to learn the IT skills. They're, they're definitely more technical and, and challenging in their own way, especially if you don't actually have that predisposition toward it. And so I love to see when people will invest in themselves up front, and then we can also make that investment in them to help them build. And then long term, I think, Stephen, to your point around the the anecdote that you shared is when you invest in people, they want to give back as well. And, and so they they show that commitment to the organization. And then you, you have those longer tenured folks that are really important from a cultural perspective. Well, and you have the built-in maturity as well. You know, you have somebody that's been there, been around the block. I don't know if I had that, but a lot, a lot of them do. <laughs> so they say. Right. This may not be a question you're prepared to answer right now, but millennials and Gen X, are very different in so many ways than the previous generations. Do you find any unique challenges with the demands of, you know, millennials are all about wanting to do something important, right? That gives back to the world. Um, Gen X are a whole, <laughs> a whole different thing. So any, any thoughts about any unique characteristics about the various generations and in, in your hiring uh, efforts? I think just, you know, flexibility has been a word that has come up even when I was working for, you know, at like a nine to five. And I remember even wanting that myself. And it just, you know, compensation is good. Benefits are, are good. But flexibility, I think, demonstrates a lot of empathy, which I think speaks across all generations. The data I've seen says that that is actually one of the most important things to Gen Xers is flexibility. And for our listeners, Alex, I want to make sure that we're not just talking about, you know, remote versus in the office. We're talking about maybe putting some time on the weekend if I've got a commitment with family and that, and that kind of thing. Is that what you're alluding to? It really is flexibility where it, it, it's I can show up the best that I can whenever that is. Is that right? I mean, I, yeah, I don't, I don't think that punching in and punching out is a good way to utilize your workforce. And I don't think that rigid rules are a good way to manage those people either, especially now that they were distributed geographically across the country or even just across town. I mean, we, don't, we might not come into the office every single day. Why not be flexible? Why not offer that? I think that's such a huge contributor to workplace morale. Yes, and those younger generations are most certainly not only mission-driven, they are definitely looking for that flexibility. Jack, you're well, anything to add there? I guess the one thing I would caution on is treating them like they're from a different generation explicitly. I think a lot of times um, people will lump you into a category, whether it's the millennial, Gen X, Gen Y, and then they'll treat you that way, assuming that you you fit into that mold. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you look at 
Maslow's hierarchy of needs, everybody prioritizes those a little bit differently. And so the important thing is just getting to know your people and what they prioritize, because even if they're part of a different generation, they may still have the same priorities or wildly different than that generation. So just get to know your people. That's a really good, good point. IT is so measurable and you build the right metrics. You measure people the way that you should. They get it done in 20 hours or 30 hours. It shouldn't matter. That way they know that they have the flexibility, they can get the job done and they're measured appropriately. One of the things that Arizona Tech Council has been highly focused on for many years now is uh, diversity, you know, DEI, and we run a tech inclusion forum. We have a women in the workforce committee. We make statements on our website about the importance of diversity. What's going on in the IT field to bring more diversity into your teams and into your organization. You know, all the research shows that the more diversity you have, the more effective you can be. And this is all kinds of diversity, like cognitive diversity, right? And as well as, um, you know, other types of diversity. So any any thoughts about unique things that you're doing in your organization to attract more a more diverse uh, workforce? Well, first, it needs to come from the top down. So you got to have the philosophy, right? Um, if, if it's not coming from the top down, it's not going to happen. And then from my perspective, as, as a recruiter, you have to be open-minded and you have to you have to expand, look outside the nine dots when you're recruiting, open up more horizons and take out the biases. It's really not a special project or a thing. It should just be part of your culture and way of life. Some of the things that don't cost money, you, you can have an inclusion committee. You can build your holidays to be flexible, to include, make it all you know more inclusive for people. You can have suggestions, you can, you know, just little things that you can make them when they walk in the door that they feel comfortable and welcome. Yeah, what I, I think that's one of the more important things. Thank you, Jackie. Yeah, I think there's a, the things that we're doing now and then the, the things that will pay dividends 20, 30 years down the road. Like you mentioned the number of engineering college graduates that are coming out right now. The demographic breakdown of those, I assume, is skewed. And, and that is something that it will take years and years to shift. And, you know, I, I think about my, my three kids and as we prepare them and enable them with the tools, it's great to see. We, we live in Paradise Valley School District and the focus on technology there and, and STEAM and the instance of, the, of that school district uh, will be really, really important for them as they, as they grow, learn, mature, and they have that awareness of what are the different careers that are out there um, and making sure that's accessible to all of them. Alex, anything to add there? I mean, I think you guys nailed it. You know, Will and Jackie, you know, people are the biggest asset to a business. And um, I think sometimes it's forgotten too far frequently that we need to treat them, you know, like like just people. And, you know, that means being an open mind, having an open mind rather, and being willing to, you know, question, you know, your own understanding of how things might have been. So super important. I'd also add to that conversation real quick, Steve, for our listeners and viewers, if you if you say to yourself, I've got an open mind and I just don't know how to go about treating my company and hiring with more diversity and inclusion in mind, there are plenty of resources. Reach out to the Arizona Technology Council. You can Google online, right? We no longer can say we don't know how or we don't know who. There's plenty of resources out there to help us just stretch beyond what we're, what we're either comfortable with or what we're used to so that we're making sure that we are keeping everybody in mind. And to Steve's point earlier, that's what that's what's going to make a difference in the longevity and the growth in companies. The companies that are focused on that are going to succeed and win. So kudos to the three of you for doing that. 
So I'd like to take us home with the final question, which is all the rage. We have a AI committee and uh, there are tons of people on it because it's, you know, generative AI is, you can't have a discussion these days without talking about it. What technology innovations or trends are impacting the IT field and workforce as we speak? Obviously, ChatGPT would be one of those, and I'd be interested in knowing, you know, how you're utilizing AI in the workplace. You know, in my view, it's going to be one of the most transformational technologies that's ever happened in our lifetime, and it's going to affect everything. So, and not just AI, but are there other technology trends in the IT industry you can point to? I mean, AI is both so fascinating and terrifying at the same time. And when you combine that with, you know, Moore's Law, you know, how every year the amount of computing chip that you can put inside of a one, you know, the same physical space just gets smaller and smaller. And so you think about IoT, you know, Internet of Things and how everything has a chip in it now, whether it's outside of smart thermostats now. I mean, you're looking at, you know, light bulbs that have Wi-Fi and everything in your house has Wi-Fi. And I mean, you can't go 10 feet without a Wi-Fi device or a Bluetooth device. So how soon is it going to be before AI is now in those IoT devices as well? And so um, I think that has drastic implications on the IT field. And I'm not sure how that looks exactly, but I do know that we need to pay attention. I think I have three to four generative AI meetings per day at this point. It is is one of our primary focuses as an organization. It, it's, to your point, it's going to be transformational. And I think right now, a lot of organizations are struggling with what to do with it. The analogy that I've been using is it feels like we've just discovered fire, but everybody is kind of looking for that internal combustion engine of what is that amazing use case at the end of it that, that we're going to get to. But in the meantime, like we can just, we can cook some food on it and we have light and heat. Like there's, there are so many use cases that are immediately available. Uh, the one big thing that I think is holding a lot of organizations back, because technically it's not that complex to implement, is the security component to it, um, which Alex has brought up a few times. It, uh, I think once we get past that hurdle and people start to become more comfortable with it, it is going to be, to use, I think the term you used apprentice earlier, it's going to be like an apprentice for you. And as knowledge workers, it's going to make you significantly more efficient in your day-to-day -day tasks. If, if you're not using it now, you, you probably should be, as long as it's within the policy, the IT policy of your organization. And if you're an organization that doesn't have an AI policy, you absolutely need one mm -hmm. because your people are using it. Uh, and in some cases, organizations have gone out and just shut down access to ChatGPT. But people are probably working around that. They're they're using their phones to get to it because it does make you that much more effective, that much faster. And the efficiency gains for an organization, especially a small organization, is going to be really, really powerful for them. So I'm, I'm excited for it. You know, it, what underlines all those AI capabilities is data. And, and that's the world that I live in. And so all these organizations that that view AI as the future, the, they'll start to dabble in it and then realize that there's a whole host of things that they need to do to enable AI to be effective because their their data quality just isn't there yet. Yeah, 100%. I mean, we're using AI-based security for some of our clients now. And that's like you said, well, I mean, it's like we discovered fire and it's like, you know, you can cook some food on it and it's kind of cool, but we know internally that we can do so much more with it. So I'm looking forward to seeing what that is. Probably out of time, Karen, but one of the things that I know about AI is that it does code. And, you know, coding is about you know, you do the code and you test and you verify, and you test and you verify. Seems to me that ChatGPT can now do the coding or AI can do the coding and 
You just have to do the testing and the verification. I, I saw a joke recently that before you would write, you'd, you'd spend 10 hours writing the code and then an hour or two testing it. And now it's the inverse with, with ChatGPT. You still need to be a competent developer to use it effectively and to, and to troubleshoot it. With GitHub Copilot, you can just be a, a much more effective and, and faster developer, especially if I think if you're if you're junior in your career, uh, it can help you grow your skills. Uh, one of the interesting use cases is just around documentation. And, and that's, I think, one of the, the tie-ins with MSP and then my company being a, a technology consulting firm is a lot of times we're handing off to an MSP and there's a whole question around documentation. And I think we're almost going to move into a post-documentation world because I don't need to explain all the code. You can just put it into, you know, an LLM and, and it'll explain to you what the code is doing. So, yeah, just a ton of use cases, a lot of excitement around it. Yeah, you can tell I'm excited good. about yeah. it. <laughs> Well, All right, Karen. we are. Uh, yeah, we're a fantastic conversation. Again, we love going to the experts and hearing from you directly what's happening. And we say this typically, we could have another episode or two with the three of you because there's just so much more information to share. So for our listeners, we hope that you will stay in touch with Alex with Cool Technologies, Will with Slalom, and Jackie with Accountability. It's been really great to get to know and share in your wisdom today. Thank you for each of you for being here. You've been listening to AZ TechCast, brought to you by Phoenix Business Radio, as well as Arizona Technology Council. Today's AZ TechCast was also brought to you by Arizona Commerce Authority, the state's leading economic development organization, with a streamlined mission to grow and strengthen Arizona's economy. We're always appreciative of Arizona Commerce Authority. If you are interested in being a podcast participant or sponsor for the Council's AZ TechCast, please contact marketing at aztechcouncil.org to learn more about opportunities to further position you as a tech expert, influencer, and or innovator. Until next time, I'm Karen Nowicki. Thank you for joining us for AZ TechCast. Thank you for joining us for this episode of AZ TechCast with Arizona Technology Council featuring leading tech and business experts that help influence and shape our great state and the industries they serve.